it's up to you and me to shine a guiding light and lead the way. United by our cause, we have the power to pursue what we believe. We'll achieve the realization of our dreams. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of New Horizons. I'm Vaughan Benison. Thank you very much once again for your company. And also today, thank you once again to Graham Innes. We spoke with Graham and Susan Thompson about the IRA access for the Sydney trains. I'm pleased to say that's going really well. Graham's back to join us again to uh, talk about something a little bit different. Graham, welcome back to the program. This is becoming a habit. Well, hang on, Vaughan. Yes, it is. But uh, uh, I need to explain why, because we've had a listener request to interview you and talk to you about Vaughan Benison. So I'm going to virtually hijack the interviewer's chair and uh, ask you some questions, uh, which will be a, a bit of a change for the listeners, but uh, uh, probably a bit of a change for you as well. Well, so, yes, I'm not used to being on the other end of it. <laughs> no, that's right. So it's a tricky change to make. So I know you were born and grew up in uh, New Zealand, Vaughan. Uh, tell us about that. Well, I was born in a, in a fairly small town, not a super small town, um, Hastings, which mm. is in the North Island, towards the bottom end of the North Island. Um, and uh, I grew up mostly on farms and orchards and things. That's the type of work my father did. And my mother um, worked as a ceramics instructor and a few other things. Uh, and I went to a boarding school in, in Auckland. Uh, and I went there for five and a half years before coming to Australia. And Vaughan, what was it like as a, a child who was blind um, growing up on in that sort of farming and orcharding environment? Well, it was all I knew, Graham. I, I sort of um, ran around and did the stuff the other kids did, drove the tractors, um, drove the motorbikes. Um, we had this thing when my father eventually ended up managing his own orchard and um, I used to go mm. around with him and I'd drive the tractor and he'd do what needed doing and then just jump back up on the mudguard and tell me how much further to go and when to stop and when to turn and what have you and then I'd stop and he'd jump off and do the work and so, you know, we'd go on from there. Um, but I learnt very early that I had to be able to learn my way around and use whatever tools I had in my arsenal to learn my way around all of these different environments. Uh, and yeah, I got lost and I fell over and hurt myself just like every other kid does. But, um, you know, I was always encouraged to get out and do things myself hmm. um, and do things with other people. So, um, you know, I grew up very much, um, I don't even think in fact, I could remember when I was eight or nine uh, and I had started doing writing for the disabled and one of my friends said to me, well, in what way are you disabled? And I said, well, bug it if I know. <laughs> yeah. And did you use a white cane in that environment or did you use echolocation? What what were the tools in your toolkit? Um, I did learn to use a white cane from the age of five or six um, as mm. part of school. I don't remember... I, actually, I do remember the first time that I was encouraged to take it home um, and I never used it around the home environment or yeah. uh, on the orchards or anything like that. Those of yeah. you who have ever used a white cane uh, around gravel and rough ground and uh, cow poo and uh, fences <laughs> and all that sort of thing know full well how unpleasant the idea of using a, a rigid white cane in those days. They were We used rigid canes. We didn't have folding That's trains. Right. Um, and mm. they had the pencil tip and they used to get stuck in everything and uh, so I, I never used it around those environments so I used echolocation. Um, we talk, also talk had, about that a little bit uh, Vaughan because some people may not use it or may not be aware what it is. Um, echolocation really is using the sound of things around you and sounds perhaps that you make um, to get I guess a sonar style um, visual 
interpretation of um, objects and things in in the the local area, you know, immediately about you. And I don't think mm. it was ever something I was taught. I think it was something I did. Uh, and I can remember being discouraged from doing it when I was uh, when I was mm. very young. But people know that when they discourage me from doing something, it's it's the best way to, to encourage me to do it. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I never really stopped doing it. But what I did was um, I learned to use noises around me to um, echolocate from rather than making my own noises necessarily. Mm. Um, and so um, I learned to use the sound of my steps and maybe I'd tap my side or something like that or hum. Um, I used to run around singing and talking, always did quite a lot of talking to myself Um, and uh, things like that. So that was how I got a lot of information, particularly riding bikes and things like that. doesn't work if you're driving a car though, so don't try that one. Yeah, or a tractor. Exactly. Um, Why? A lot of Australians, famous Australians have actually been New Zealanders who we've conscripted conscripted australia has a habit of doing that um why did you come to australia and when when did that happen um we moved to australia in uh june 1986 and uh i don't really know why we came to australia i was only Mm. 10 and a half at the time i was told that they came to australia because it was um, better for me in terms of education Um, I was also told that my father had resigned from his job and um, that the work prospects were better in Australia. Uh, Mm. And I've been told a couple of other things. So I don't know if there's a definitive reason. I think there Mm. was a mass exodus from New Zealand around that time. Uh, David Longy had come into power in in New Zealand a couple of years before and was making some significant changes that were not very popular. Um, And, uh, you know, probably changes that had to be made, but they weren't seen as being very popular, at least not by the people that I was around at that time. So uh, I think um, there were a lot of people I knew uh, who came to Australia around that time, including my father's brother. Uh, And that was probably the big part of the reason, because we actually flew into South Australia where he was living. And um, we stayed there for a week and then we drove down to Melbourne um, and we ended up living and uh, growing up in Melbourne. I lived in Melbourne for eight and a half years before I went off to uh, northern New South Wales for university. So uh, life in Melbourne as a teenager, did you get to meet other people who were blind or had low vision? Did you go to school in Australia? Absolutely, yeah. I, I um, mm. As I said, I'd been to a blind school all through New Zealand, um, all through my time in New Zealand. And when I came to Australia, I had to go to the RVIB for... About six months, the RVIB in Burwood. Uh, hello to all of those of you who uh, who went to the RVIB. Um, main, the main reason was that um, in New Zealand, I don't know whether you know this, Graham, but in New Zealand um, they did at that time and probably still do use the Nemeth Code for mathematics, for Braille I mathematics. Know, yeah. Um, yeah. And so I grew up with Nemeth and that was what I knew and that's not what they use in Australia. No. Um, And in fact, the Braille Maths Code that we used in Australia has now gone by the wayside as a result of UEB. So um, I had to learn that Maths Code because the intention was that I would go to a regular school thereafter and I would use um, a Braille in print, which was a device that uh, sat underneath the Perkins Brailler and you uh, brailled on your your Brailler and uh, a printer next to you would spit out what you brailled in print. So I had Mm. to learn the correct maths code so that um, I could braille out my maths homework and hopefully have it printed reasonably successfully. 
Right, right, okay. And and did you end up going to a, an ordinary school or did you stay at the RVIB school? No, the RVIB school sort of topped out at that time um, at around grade four. And so mm-hmm. um, I um, moved on to a regular school, uh, my local school, where my brother had been going for the last six months. And uh, then, of course, I moved on from there uh, to high school uh, and mm-hmm. went to Box Hill High for six years. Right. And I guess uh, you said a moment ago that you went to northern New South Wales to go to university. I imagine that was the first time that you were away for your, from your family for significant periods of time. Um, how was managing as a, a young blind man uh, living on your own, uh, studying? Uh, what, how, how did that change the experiences that you had? Well, actually, Graham, it wasn't really the first time because I'd been to boarding school. Um, so I oh, spent course, terms yes. away from my family for mm. uh, most of my childhood. Uh, and mm. then when my father manages, managed his orchard, I only came home on weekends. So right. I had a very fractured relationship with my family. And um, my parents split up when I was about 13. And my mother and my younger brother went back to New Zealand. And so I lived with my father and uh, he remarried and has um, and she had three kids. His wife has three kids. Mm. Mm. So... Um, I like to say I didn't leave home, home left me because my father right. and his wife decided in the early 1994, so about um, almost a year before I went to uni, they decided they were going to move off to South Australia. So I ended oh, up living I with my see. uncle. So by the time I moved to northern New South Wales, um, my, my parents had been very strong proponents on um, the idea of me making sure that I could do everything that any other kid could do. So, um, you know, I'd spent... Uh, I'd cooked family meals and I'd, I'd done washing and ironing and, um, you know, cleaning the house from a very young age, uh, probably six or seven. Um, mm. And in fact, my job as a, as a young child was cleaning the bathroom and the toilets. So, um, And the reason that my mother got me doing that was because they were really easy to tell the difference between being dirty and clean. Well, that's true. By feel, yeah. you can you can feel the toilet yeah. bowl and tell when it's when it's clean. I know yeah. that sounds pretty gross, but it's true, and you know it's it's something that I've um, passed on to many blind people as I've as I've gone through. Is you know, don't be afraid of these things, and you know, make the most of them. So when I moved out on my own, well, actually, I didn't move on my own. I, I went off um, and uh, lived with a, a good friend of mine, uh, mm-hmm. and we went to university together in uh, northern New right. South Wales. Um, and so, you know, we had to cook for ourselves and all of that sort of thing. And we fell on our feet because we had some uh, very nice people at the uh, university college that we lived at. And we went and did our shopping together and things like that, which was absolutely mm. terrific. So in a lot of respects, it was um, it was very different for me. But in a lot of respects, it actually wasn't because uh, I was so used to being away from my family anyway. Sure. And what were you studying at university uh, at that stage for? For my crimes, I did music. Um Okay. I got a couple of um, interesting things out of it, though. I didn't enjoy the music side of it anywhere near as much as I thought I would. Um, right. And so I went and studied contemporary music, and that bored me to tears. Um, but I did get a lot of uh, grounding in areas that I would never have expected, uh, although thinking back in hindsight, I should have expected uh, because of my love of technology. I, I did quite a lot of audio engineering uh, and some broadcasting uh, work through my university course. So uh, I picked up, uh, I did a lot of audio engineering subjects and broadcasting subjects and also got quite a lot of gigs um, uh, 
recording people, engineering people's, um, uh, you know, demos and albums and things like that, as well as uh, working on the university-run radio station. So I guess really when you think about it, it was um, sort of the start of uh, what I ended up doing for the rest of my life. So your love of radio and audio uh, has been a lifelong passion. I guess it started, my grandfather was an amateur, a radio amateur um, in New mm-hmm. Zealand, and he had a what they call a shack, which is, in his case, a room out the back where um, he had all his uh, radio gear and electronics, and he ran a radio and TV repair shop in those days. They existed um, and you could you could go in there and, and buy secondhand TVs and secondhand stereos and, um, you know, you could bring your gear in and he'd fix it and all that sort of thing. Mm. And so I learnt um, a lot about electronics and, uh, and radio from him. And I loved the thought that I could actually sit behind a microphone and speak and potentially millions of people could hear me. I always thought that was, you know, particularly amazing. I didn't ever think I would make a life out of it. Uh, but, uh, you know, I just thought the whole concept was, uh, was absolutely incredible. And the fact that I could talk to people from, I, I remember speaking to a chap from Japan and a guy from, uh, Hungary and people from the U S and all that sort of thing. And as a four and five year old, being able to do that is absolutely amazing. It's interesting, isn't it? Because many blind people will get their love and joy from radio, from listening to the radio, but you actually got it from participating in that amateur radio context and, and also learning about the uh, the audio knowledge that you would need to have to uh, to run amateur radio equipment. So that's a, it's a fascinatingly different uh, start to it. I did get it from listening as well. Um, hmm. One of the things that uh, intrigued me, and it took me a very long time to understand why this was the case, but I don't know whether you remember, it doesn't happen as much, but back in the 70s and 80s, when you tune up the dial on a, on a wireless, um, you would hear multiple copies of a, of a radio station. Do you remember that? Yes, I do. I and do remember that. I always wondered why they did it. And it wasn't, uh, you know, and I still don't fully understand um, why it is now. But I remember um, I remember having a, a watershed moment when I realized, because I learned when I was very young about the game Musical Statues. Mm-hmm. And musical statues, if you've never played it, is when people play music and when the music stops, you're supposed to stand completely still and anyone who moves is out. Yep. And then the music carries on and, and what have you. And I remember turning my radio on and pretending to play musical statues and then turning it off and then turning it back on again a minute later and realizing that the music had continued in my absence. And I realized i remember this particular afternoon suddenly realizing it's not like a tape or a record or whatever somebody else is in control of this music and i'm just listening to it and that absolutely fascinated me i wanted to be the person who who made the music go for uh, all of those other people who were going to pretend to play musical statues in their bedrooms i love that you can have an event like that in your life and it can just flow through to what you do. I think it's a fascinating insight into human development. And uh, so thanks for sharing that with us. So you you went uh, from university. uh, Where did you go there? Did you start looking for other employment or did you keep working in the uh, audio and uh, and radio type fields? Um, No, I didn't. Um, I got very disillusioned with my course that I was doing. I was there for four years and um, 
there were a couple of things that happened that that caused me to be really disillusioned. I failed a couple of subjects, one of which was because the person who was supposed to have marked it didn't uh, didn't hand in the marks, and I had recordings of the uh, the the music exam and everything, but they didn't mm. hand in the marks, and I didn't find out until it was too late. Um, oh. And I didn't know about the um, appeals processes processes mm. that were around at that time, and also I'd got to the point where I'd had enough. Yeah. And um, my wife, we got married in um, 1997, and um, she is from Brisbane, as uh, I'm sure most people listening to this program will know. And uh, yes. uh, so we decided at the end of, towards the end of 1998, we weren't going to hang around um, for another year for me to catch up on those couple of subjects, and that if I could pick them up in Brisbane, were all well and good, but we'd had enough and it was time to move on. Um, mm. She ended up getting a job in Brisbane as um, a customer service officer for the Department of Training and Industrial Relations. Um, and um, so we moved to Brisbane and I ended up getting a job working in information technology support, which uh, was another thing that I was really, really keen on. I've always loved computers and I've... Uh, been a big proponent of technology for blind and vision impaired people uh, all my life. And so to have the opportunity to work in uh, information technology support, albeit at a primary school, uh, was mm. a really unique experience. And as part of that, I provided technical support to um, the teachers and the support staff, as well as to the students. And the interesting thing that came out of that, of course, was that I was using screen readers and, uh, well, at that time I didn't have a braille display, but particularly screen readers and OCR technology and that um, quite prominently. And um, I'd, I'd like to hope that a lot of that is rubbed off on uh, on some of those kids at that school and they have an idea of adaptive technology and how useful it can be for people with a disability. So for anyone who hasn't worked it out, you're, of course, uh, you and Emma Benison are, are, are married, and, and many people will have heard Emma uh, on this program and uh, in the BCA videos, and she's now the, the CEO of Blind Citizens Australia. Uh, so you're, you're two blind uh, parents, and, and you have uh, two children. Um, tell us about how you moved from moving to Brisbane, um, you know, starting your life there uh, and working in those roles. Uh, tell us how, how that progressed. Uh, well, I um, that job that I had at the primary school was a traineeship, um, and um, it gave me a certificate level uh, qualification in in IT user support. During that time, I'd been working voluntarily at it uh, for RPH in Brisbane, doing production and broadcasting, and um, mm -hmm. I started my uh, I guess my BCA career at that time as well, uh, working with Steve Richardson doing sound about Queensland. Um, oh, yes. And uh, there's, uh, it's interesting. Some of those, um, some of those episodes still exist, and it's quite interesting to uh, to hear some of the the uh, antics that uh, that Steve and I got up to. Um, <laughs> after that role finished, um, I tried to continue in IT support type roles. Um, I wasn't very successful at getting employment, but I did have um, you know steady voluntary work at the at the RPH station. And so I said to Emma, you know what, I think we have to have kids, otherwise I'm gonna have to do something else about finding work. No, I didn't really say that. Um, <laughs> we but we did um, sort of start trying um, around that time and um, mm -hmm. we had some difficulties. But one of the difficulties that we had um, I think was, uh, you know, aside from actually getting pregnant and having kids, was mm. really around finding out enough information um, 
from other blind parents about how they cope with things like, uh, particularly we were thinking at this at, at that stage at the early baby stuff. Um, neither of us had had a lot of experience with babies um, because I was the oldest in my family and I was right. pretty much divorced from my family. Uh, Emma was mm. the youngest, but um, when most of her family were having kids, she wasn't really that interested. Um, right. And so we didn't have a lot of experience with babies. Mm. Um so we were really lucky in, in some of the people that we spoke to and um, the connections that we made to be able to get the information we needed. And uh, we had Julian towards the end of 2003. And uh, we um, were very strong on um, our belief that we were going to continue as we meant to go on. And so um, we, uh, we went out with Julian, went shopping five days after he was born. And mm. in fact, there's a funny story that goes around that because I'd had a dog by that time for 18 months um, and uh, I had my dog beside me and I had Julie in, in the carrier on my chest and we were sitting having coffee and this woman came up and said, oh, isn't he beautiful? How old is he? I said, oh, he's about five days. Oh, no, I meant the dog, not the baby. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. Yes. I think many of us have had those sorts of experiences. Mm. Um, so... It's it's interesting that you you say that you you did your learning from other people who are blind uh, or had low vision, and that's very much how I did it when I was uh, when I was parenting uh, as well. So that sort of peer support and sharing of uh, information and lessons learned is is really critical, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, and your children uh, uh, are now, um, of course, much older, and uh, you pursued radio um after 4rph in brisbane you pursued it in uh, in tasmania um well I, I don't know whether you could say i pursued it i i kind of threw it my hat in the you. ring but um right. it, it was a bit of a strange situation because um it, we were sort of getting towards the end of 2011 and um julian had long since started school and lucy was going to be starting school in the next year or so and i sort of got to the point where I was either, and, and I was running my own home studio at the time, particularly specialising in archival materials. So I mm -hmm. was archiving 78s and other, other formats uh, for oh, people, okay. uh, which I really love doing. It's one of the things I really mm. enjoy doing the most because one of the things um, that I do, I'm a, a, an audio collector and I collect all forms of uh, audio equipment and especially vintage audio equipment and things like that. So, um, and the recordings, I just, you know, love um, hearing the, the recordings from, you know, years gone by and what have you. Yes. Anyway, we got towards the end of uh, 2011 and I thought I'm either going to have to go back to university and study something that's actually useful and that's going to get me a job or I'm going to have to get a job. And I thought I have no idea what I would study. Absolutely no idea. The only thing I thought I was any good at was um, the audio stuff and childcare. So I thought I could go and study childcare, but there's not a lot of avenues for guys in childcare. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, my computer knowledge was sort of in many respects, sort of behind the eight ball by this time. Um, and I thought I, there's no way I'm going to get a job in radio. And I just happened to be reading my email one night and, um, I saw, um, a circular from, or an email from, uh, Ed, the then manager of 4RPH saying, um, in case you're interested. And it was a posting for the manager of, uh, RPH Print Radio Tasmania, as it was called uh, back mm. in those days, uh, for for the manager role. So I thought, 
well, here we go. This could be interesting. Um, I've never been. I'd been to Tasmania for about two days. Yeah. Um, I knew only one person or two people in Tasmania. Um, mm. But I had met the previous manager. Um, right. A couple of previous managers. So I thought, okay, I have no hope in hell of getting this job. But I'm going to give it a go anyway. And um, Emma's role was sort of, there was the potential for her to get the role. She was working for Access Arts Queensland at the time. Mm. And uh, there was the potential for her to work for the national organisation, Arts Access Australia, in which case it would be a remote um, teleworking type arrangement. So um, it kind of meant that we could actually go to Tasmania without any real dramas. So I thought, okay, well, there's no hope. There's no way in hell I'm going to get this job. So I'll apply for it and just see what happens. And um, I, I sent in the... Um, uh, application and um i got an email back that sunday night saying um would you do an interview tomorrow right so i said yeah sure so um mm. we did it via uh telephone mm-hmm. no zoom in those days we did have skype no. though um and there were three people on the other end of the phone and we spoke for an hour or so and um and they said to me oh um so do you have any other questions to ask us. And I said, well, um, firstly, uh, how many people have applied for the job? And they said, oh, we've had about four applications, including the person who is currently the assistant manager. And I thought, oh, there's no way I'm going to get it. Mm. Um, and uh, they said, so have you got any other questions? I said, well, we haven't talked about it, but you do know I'm blind, right? And he said, the, the president of the board said, well, we kind of figured that out. Do you see that as being a problem? And I said, well, um, the fact that you've asked me that the answer the answer from me would be no. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's just, it never came up. I don't mention it in my, I'm one of these people who don't disclose unless I have to. Yes. And so um, it didn't, it's, if you read my resume, it's, it's obvious, but it's not stated. And the fact sure. that he then said to me, do you think it's a problem? And I just said, no, that'll be fine. And I found mm-hmm. out a month later, they wanted me to come down for a second interview and um, I got the job. So... Um, three months later, I moved down to we all. Well, I came first to Tasmania, and started mm. working. Um, and I had two weeks of handover with the previous manager, and um, looked for a house. And uh, the others came down at the end of July. So, you know, and uh, I spent nearly, or a bit over, nearly seven and a half years doing that job. And Vaughan, you're now in a in a different role with a service provider in Tasmania. Uh, how do you mix that work, that career, that professional career uh, managing service provision in a blindness organisation in uh, Tasmania with your work for BCA and your involvement with BCA? That's a really difficult question to answer. Um, sometimes it's not always easy, um, but the way that I look at it is that as a person who's blind um, I have access to the community that um, the organisation is serving. Um, I guess I, I could clarify it by saying I have unparalleled access to the community that the organisation is serving um, because there are no other blind and vision impaired people working at the organisation for which I work, uh, at least not in Tasmania. There are in the main, whether the bulk of the company is in Western Australia, mm-hmm. um, but I'm the only blind person um, working for uh, visibility in Tasmania 
Um, yes. I think there's a couple of people who've got a vision impairment, but I don't know how significant it is. Sure. Um, but I, uh, apart from doing New Horizons, which I've done for, for some years now, um, my other work is uh, as the president of the BC Tasmania branch, the Blind Citizens Tasmania branch mm-hmm. uh, of BCA. So, um, and I, I guess one of the things that I did was to make my position very clear um, from the outset and my firm belief that um, there are synergies between working for a service provider and working uh, as the president or at least working within Blind Citizens Australia um, as a whole and also branches um, to bring the two together so that um, the two organisations can partner with each other, uh, develop services together and do work together um, because Blind Citizens Australia in many respects um, has goodwill from the community that um, service providers can work with and um, service providers have access to infrastructure, to potentially to funding, to um, spaces that the blind and vision impaired community can use um, mm. for their groups and things like that. So it, it goes it goes way beyond that. But in terms of um, in terms of managing the process, I do find myself having to be really careful um, about when am I being a service provider and when am I being an advocate. Um, so, you know, if, if that gets more difficult to manage, then I'll have to, you know, I'll have to consider my position. Uh, but for the moment, I think, um, you know, I've, I've been very clear with my colleagues on the, on the committee about, um, what I feel my position is and, and, um, you know, where I feel that I can be of benefit to the community. This has been a fascinating, um, in this rather long interview, a fascinating dip into the life of Vaughan Benison. And you can only um, touch the surface of a person's life, but you've given us some fascinating insights. I wanted to end with this question uh, because clearly you have a passion for BCA and what BCA does because you wouldn't put in the work that you do, uh, putting New Horizons together and, uh, and doing the other work for the BCA branch in Tasmania. Uh, if you didn't have that passion. So why is BCA so important? What's the key important role that BCA plays for you? I want to get away from sort of touting the BCA party line because whilst I absolutely agree with it, it, it doesn't it, it doesn't so much resonate for me um, because I feel that for me it's about... Um, it's for me BCA is really much very much about providing that peer support and mentorship um, role um, advocacy is something um, from from my personal point of view that I've always done myself um, mm. I have never if ever um, asked for assistance with advocating on my own behalf um, because I've had to do it for so much of my life it's just um, something that's natural and frankly I've been really really lucky I've had very few situations that I haven't been able to advocate my way through um, and uh, and I'm a pushy bastard and everyone who knows me will know that um, so for me what Blind Citizens Australia is really about and, and what I really like to contribute to to BCA is that peer support and mentoring 
avenue, which I think is so vital for people who are blind or vision impaired, um, especially those who um, haven't had the same sort of um, upbringing and the same sort of luck that I've had throughout my uh, throughout my existence, and mm-hmm. also those people who have lost their sight recently and are coming to grips with the whole idea of, of being blind uh, or vision impaired. And I think that really comes down to one of the things that I really enjoy about my current role as, uh, you know, in management of a, of a service provider is mm-hmm. about being able to have access to those people who are going through this at a, at a professional level and to show them that, um, you know, blind people can be out there and have meaningful jobs and have meaningful roles within the community um, and that losing your sight is not the be-all and end-all. Vaughan Benison, it's been a fascinating story. Thanks for the chance to share it with you. I've really uh, enjoyed it and learned a lot. And I'm now going to give you back your interview chair. Thanks, Graham. Much appreciated. And that ends this week's program. Hope you've enjoyed it. If you'd like to uh, contact Blind Citizens Australia, call 1-800-033-660. Or you can email bca at bca.org.au. bca at bca.org.au. If you have any feedback on New Horizons or any story ideas, get in touch with me. New.horizons at bca.org.au is the email address. New.horizons at bca.org.au. You, or you can leave me a message on the Blind Citizens Australia feedback service. I'm Vaughan Benison. Hope you've enjoyed this week's program. Do take care. I'll talk to you again next week.